One of the clearest realities of poker since 2003, when Chris Moneymaker's win in the World Series of Poker main event inspired millions of inexperienced players to try the game for the first time, is that poker keeps getting harder. In 2019, poker remains beatable, but for how long, and in what contexts, and to what degree will it stay that way? Welcome to Third Man Walking. Several years ago, I was playing in a live 2-5 game for one of the first times in my life. The young man on my direct right bought into the game with a single orange $1,000 chip and, over a few hours, pulled a couple more orange chips out of his pocket. He was the only player at the table besides me who was consistently raising when he entered pots. I'd played online, so I wasn't intimidated by his poker ability exactly. But he had an ease at the table and an apparent sense of certainty about how to deal with his opponents that I envied. The session wasn't going well for him. He had played lots of pots, and I thought at the time that he played too many, although of course I don't know what hands he had. Then he either gave up on the flop or the turn. After a few hours of trickling away chips, he was probably down a thousand dollars, which seemed like a huge amount of money to me at the time. I ended up asking him if he was a pro, and he said he was. Then I asked a few questions about his poker career, including if he ever worried that poker was getting tougher. If I'd had more experience at live cash tables, I probably would have realized I was needling him, but I didn't know that then. He said, man, I think about that all the time, and said he was considering quitting poker and going into real estate, but he said he could never work a 9-to-5. I got beat pretty badly myself that day, and it was a long time after that before I started playing live cash games on a daily basis, but I saw that player a few months later. He was on a date at a restaurant near my apartment. I thought about knocking on the window to say hello, but then I thought, wait, I don't really know this guy. I kept walking, and I never saw him again, not even after I became a regular in the 2-5 games at that casino a few years later. Maybe he did quit poker, or maybe he left town. Change is a constant in live poker. People quit, they move, they change stakes. Players who consistently beat a game in a given locale for years at a time are rare. And perhaps the biggest factor is that poker does keep getting tougher. The skill set needed to win at poker keeps changing. Before the poker boom in 2003, there weren't many training materials, and players had to stay ahead of the competition, mainly by playing aggressively, as they were taught to do in Doyle Brunson's Super System, one of the few poker books anyone knew of back then, and through trial and error. Almost no one in live poker played a mathematically grounded game, so it was important to have a good sense of the moods and capabilities of your opponents. With each passing year since the poker boom, more of the lowest hanging fruit disappeared. Young players used software and watched videos and improved quickly, and as pros got better, weaker players either fell by the wayside or adapted. Maybe they didn't figure out all the same things the pros did, but by making basic changes like not playing so many hands, they limited their losses. Pros also got better at playing against each other, using sophisticated software to keep from being exploited by good competition. 
That means that if you watch videos of famous poker hands from, say, 10 years ago, the strategies the players use are likely obsolete. I'm recording this podcast in 2019, and I don't play perfectly based on what we know about poker now, but I'm not bad. If you listen to this podcast in 2029, the hands I play will probably sound idiotic. I've even recorded some hand histories for this podcast that are now just a few months old, and I'm reluctant to use them because my approach to some of the hands I played then would be pretty different today. Over time, though, the rate of progress has slowed. In his book, The Signal and the Noise, Nate Silver applies to poker an idea from economics called the Pareto Principle, or the 80-20 rule. The Pareto Principle says you can get 80% of the outputs from 20% of the inputs. Or, to put it differently, by doing the first 20% of the work, you can get 80% of the results. In the first few years after the poker boom, most players weren't doing even very basic things correctly. Today, it's different. At least at, say, 2-5 and above, and even sometimes at 1-2, many recreational players have a decent idea what basic strategy looks like. They know to usually fold weak hands before the flop, to enter a pot by raising rather than limping, and to play lots of hands from the button and the big blind rather than when you're first to act. A player who does just those basic things will get massively better results than a player who doesn't. The player who implements the first 20% of the strategy will get 80% of the benefits. I'd argue that most poker players who are going to pass that threshold have already done so, and that most people still consistently winning at poker are already subsisting on fruit that's far up in the trees. So let's put poker players in 2019 into three groups. Group one isn't concerned about the basics. There aren't as many of these players as there used to be, but they'll probably always exist. They play for fun, to gamble and to see what happens, and aren't interested in following someone else's rules, which, of course, is a totally valid approach to the game. The players in group two have figured out some basic strategy. Maybe they used to play 50% of hands and now they play 25, and maybe they now raise rather than limping with many of those hands. But these players are also unlikely to get much better from this point forward. This group doesn't want to grind solver solutions either, and it doesn't help them that the next tier of poker strategy they haven't yet mastered, when to bet the flop, when to bet the turn, what size bets to use, and so on, is a lot more complicated than just knowing you're supposed to fold 7-4 suited from early position. Group 3 is players who are at least breaking even. The ability of these players to stay break-even or winning depends in large part on how well they stack up to similar players. The action in a poker game depends on the less skilled players, but the better ones also have a significant impact on how tough the game is. Regardless of how much money a recreational player might lose, it's much easier to win if you're the best or second best player at the table rather than the fifth best. The presence of action players at your table might not matter much if the pros can see through you. Those are the players who are actively studying, and as their studying gets more and more efficient, the games get tougher. As pros get better, the recreational players either have to get better themselves, or lose more money, or move down in stakes, or play less. So at this point, group 3, the pros and the best recreational players, perhaps have a stronger impact on the ecosystem than they once did, especially in bigger games. These players keep getting better and applying pressure to the other two groups, causing them to put in fewer hours at the table and worsening the quality of games overall. 
Increasingly, the wealthiest recreational players are also sequestering themselves in private or semi-private games where they can play for high stakes while limiting their exposure to group 3 players, especially ones who aren't personable or fun to have at the table. As a result, the quality of publicly available games continues to decline, although perhaps at a slower pace than it once did. An economic downturn is perhaps an even greater danger to the poker ecosystem than changes in player skill. As I record this in October 2019, the American economy is fairly strong overall. If that changes, recreational players will find ways to lose less money. A buddy of mine explains it like this. Suppose there's a businessman who currently loses about $5,000 a month in poker. It's not always $5,000. Some months it's ten, and other months he wins a couple grand. But in general, he loses about 5000 That sort of spending might seem reasonable to him because he figures, well, I'll stick around for those extra couple buy-ins because I know I've got a contract coming in tomorrow for twenty-five grand. But if the economy changes and he can't count on that twenty-five grand anymore, suddenly he's playing fewer hours and perhaps playing tighter, and he loses $2,000 a month instead of five. That kind of change can have a big effect on a poker community, especially a small one. So what happens if that kind of thing occurs on a large scale? Probably a lot of weaker pros just move on, and tougher ones move into smaller games. Everyone's win rate comes down. Today I played 5-10-20 for a few hours, and also played a couple hours of 5-5. And I played significant hands with pocket 10s, in both those games, and the way I approached those hands illustrates some of the differences between the two stakes. So I had been in a 5-10 game for a couple hours, and then someone said, hey, do you guys want to make this a 5-10-20 game? And usually when that happens, the pros will just say yes. And the reason they do that is because First of all, if everyone straddles to make the game 5, 10, 20, it makes the game bigger, which is good for the pros. Secondly, a lot of the recreational players who are contributing the most to the economy want the game to be bigger, so it pleases them. And third, if you say no, you are perceived as a nit, as someone who doesn't give action, and that's a horrible image to have in a big game. And it's also really socially uncomfortable. So... If I'm in a game and somebody suggests everyone straddling and therefore making the game twice as big, I always just say yes. So that's what happened this time. So we're playing 5, 10, 20, and I pick up two black 10s in the cutoff. And normally I would raise to 60 or $65, but I can see out of the corner of my eye that the player on the button looks like he wants to put money in the pot. So I just go ahead and make it a little bit bigger and raised to $75. The button calls, as I would have expected, and the small blind, who appears to be a pro, although I've never played with him before, re-raises to $325. I start the hand with a little over $3,000, and pretty much the only play here that makes sense with a medium good hand like pocket tens is to call. So I call, and the button folds. So there's $740 in the pot heading to the flop, 
which is eight of diamonds, three of diamonds, and an offsuit deuce. So eight, three deuce with two diamonds, and I have pocket tens, uh, black tens. The small blind bets $250, a small bet which I'd expect him to make with most hands in his range. And the turn is an offsuit four, and he bets $700, which is a little bit concerning because he can have aces or kings, certainly. He can have pocket queens. He can also have 6-5 suited or ace-5 suited, which just made straights. So he can beat me with a lot of stuff here. On the other hand, he can also have two overcards, especially diamonds. So a hand like ace-king of diamonds, ace-queen of diamonds, king-jack of diamonds, jack-ten of diamonds, and so on. So I think the approach I would take with this hand against a lot of live pros is to fold if I have the 10 of diamonds in my hand and call when I don't have it, because if I have the 10 of diamonds, that prevents my opponent from having some of those flush draws. I don't have a diamond in my hand this time, so I go ahead and call with a plan of considering either calling or folding, depending on what the river is. So now there's $2,640 in the pot. The river is an offsuit queen, and my opponent moves all in for about three quarters pot. And this isn't one of the better river cards. Now my opponent also beats me with ace queen of diamonds, king queen of diamonds, or maybe just a random ace queen. I don't know if he shoves with all those hands, but they are possible. And we still lose to all the other hands we were already losing to. Aces, kings, queens, six five suited, ace five suited. So I just go ahead and fold here, figuring that I have plenty to call with. I have aces and kings some of the time. I certainly have pocket queens some of the time. I also have pocket eights. So I feel pretty good about my decision, but I also was feeling a lot of stress. This was a casino that I don't typically play at, and there were a few players who appeared to be pros in the game. In addition, a couple hands after this one, someone proposed doing another straddle and making the game 5, 10, 20, 40, which is just a massive game that I wasn't really prepared to play on that day. So I decided I was going to get up from the game. The problem was it was rush hour, so I decided to move down to the next lowest game, which was unfortunately a much smaller game, a 5-5 game, with a $600 cap. And the problem with that is, I mean, it's not a problem really, but it's boring. Five, five players as a group tend to be really loose and passive and the stacks in a 600 cap game are not deep. So the correct way to approach a five, five, 600 cap game is to play tight. And so it's just not the most exciting game, especially if you're not getting hands. Fortunately, I do pick one up. So, in this hand, there's a straddle on, so it's 5-5-10, which, and, and I start the hand with like $550 in front of me. So essentially, I'm playing 55 big blinds, and against passive opponents, it just means I need to play really tight. So there's a straddle, there's two limps, and then I have pocket tens in the cutoff again, and raise to $65. The button calls, the straddle calls, and the first limper calls which tells you a lot about how this game is playing. So there's about $270 in the pot. 
and the flop comes 10, 5, 4, rainbow. So I have top set, which is great. The action checks to me, and I think my approach to this spot would depend on what kind of game I'm playing. If I were in a game with a lot of good players, I would probably attempt to play this as a two street pot, which means that I put in one bet and then I put in a second bet on a later street and that bet is going to be an all in. But against players who are loose and passive and probably mostly just paying attention to what their hand is, um, I'm going to play this as three streets, which is a ridiculous way to play the hand because it means that I'm going to have to divide my stack into three bets which means that all the bets are going to have to be really small, which means that I would never really bluff. But I'm counting on my opponents not really knowing or caring about that. And I don't know any of the players at this table, really. Maybe some of them are really perceptive, but that's just how I'm going to play against the population. So the action checks to me, I bet $80, the button calls, and the other two players fold. So now there's about $430 in the pot, and the turn is a four. So I have tens full of fours for top full house, and I bet $110, which is about a quarter of the pot. Really, really small bet. And I'm really just dying to be called here, and my opponent does call. And so the river is an offsuit three, which seems like a pretty good card. The most obvious draw that my opponent could have had on the flop is seven six, and now seven six makes a straight, but of course is beaten by my full house. So I go all in for $285 into $650, which is less than half the pot, and I'm just hoping my opponent has something he thinks is good or is just curious enough to make this call. And he thinks about it for a while and then finally says, I got to see it and tosses in a chip. And of course, I end up winning. So the two sessions are essentially a wash. I lose some money in the 5-10-20 game and get it back thanks to pocket 10s in the 5-5 game. And after a couple hours, the traffic clears and I head home. Poker used to be a very young person's game and the massive improvement in quality of play during the poker boom was driven largely by players who were barely old enough to legally drink, or, in some cases, by players who were even younger. In 2007, Mike McDonald flew across the ocean on his 18th birthday to play the main event of the World Series of Poker Europe. He appeared on TV playing a major poker tournament while still wearing braces. Underage players back then frequently found ways to play online, and by the time they were of age, they had tons of poker experience. That's all changing. According to uspoker.com, in 2010 and 2011, the average age of players in the WSOP main event was a bit over 37 years old. By 2018, it was over 41. Between 2015 and 2018, the number of players under the age of 26 in the main event dropped from 501 to only 310. So why? First, it's now difficult for young people to play online. Online poker is an amazing training ground because you can play thousands upon thousands of hands in a very short period of time and all at low stakes. 
Since so-called Black Friday in 2011, which we'll talk more about in a second, the online poker options in the U.S. have been sketchy at best. Second, poker just isn't as visible or glamorous to young people as it once was. In 2019, the sorts of kids who might once have been on full tilt are playing Fortnite. Third, it's hard to build a bankroll given the job opportunities currently available to young people and the debt with which they've been saddled. If you don't have much disposable income, poker experience is incredibly costly. Fourth, and most importantly, the poker players who are already out there are much better than they were a decade ago. There isn't space for many whiz kids to find some new tricks and suddenly become better than everyone else. And because the games are tougher now, many fewer players in their early 20s are building the bankroll necessary to take a shot in the main event. That's disappointing, in a way. Young people used to dominate poker because the game offered great opportunities for them, and now it doesn't. What these demographic changes suggest is that much of the competition has already reached that 80% Pareto threshold, and people who have played a lot of poker already know where to hunt for high-hanging fruit. It's not a great situation, but another way to look at it is that the poker market is fairly well protected from some huge group of wunderkinds sweeping in, making poker harder, and taking all our money. Live poker is profitable now, and for those who are already winning, it will probably remain so in the near future. Now, even that is a mixed bag. The top win rates will shrink a little each year as players improve. And the rake is always a big factor in live cash games because it's a lot, and it comes straight out of your profits and reduces the amount of money on the table. Each year, as the games get tighter, the rake becomes a bit harder to overcome. And if you never move up in stakes, your win rate effectively decreases over time as inflation reduces the value of a dollar. But, for the most part, live poker should remain beatable. A significant number of players at the 2.5 and 5.10 levels make good livings now, and in five years, that will probably still be true. Online poker is different. Online, the very best players are able to play many tables at once, and they use software that's very efficient in finding their opponent's weaknesses. There are also bots, non-human accounts, that play fairly effectively and siphon off money from real players. And poker players have struggled for years with scammy companies and with the changing legal status of online poker in many countries, including the US. There are people who still make money from online poker in 2019, but it's hard. In 2011, the US government seized Poker Stars and Full Tilt Poker, effectively shutting down online poker in the US in what is now called Black Friday. Like many poker players, I had thousands of dollars stuck in limbo for two years when Full Tilt turned out to be a shell game. After players realized something was up, there were a couple hours before the system got shut down completely when you could still play on Full Tilt. I was there playing sit and goes, and it felt like the day before a blizzard, when there are lines around the grocery store which is out of bread and bottled water, people were playing much more wildly than usual, and there was talk of an apocalypse in the chat. And then, online poker vanished, only to reappear in the US with the emergence of a new group of sites that were arguably even sketchier than the old ones. Some pros moved into live poker, others moved to Mexico, Canada, or overseas to keep playing on the big online sites. Because of that experience, I'm sensitive to the impact changes in the laws, or casino rules, or the availability of poker can have on the poker economy. One room I used to frequent wasn't legally allowed to charge rake, and would only charge players a fee for sitting down in the game. 
There are card rooms in parts of the country where there are or have been caps on the number of dollars you can bet in a round, which makes No Limit Hold'em impossible to play. In Los Angeles casinos, you can play poker, but not slots, roulette, or craps, which actually ends up making the poker games better than they might ordinarily be. Casinos or card rooms open in new parts of the country that previously didn't have them, and those immediately become the hot poker markets for a couple years until the recreational players in that town either get better or leave the game. Some piece of legislation somewhere might immediately make the poker culture of a given city or state much better or worse. Or, in a city with only one poker room, a change to the amount of rake might have an immediate impact on the quality of the games. There's also the possibility that online poker could become fully legal throughout the U.S. Presidential candidate Andrew Yang recently proposed legalizing and regulating poker, which, though it's unlikely, would probably give the poker economy at least a short-term boost. So, poker is much like other forms of employment in the 21st century, contingent and vulnerable to quick and surprising changes. The very best, most profitable players will probably continue to have jobs for the foreseeable future. But the rest of us, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Just as cab drivers got displaced by Uber, changes in the market or in the laws might soon make certain classes of poker players obsolete. It's on all of us who make our living in this game to have backup plans if something changes. If I have one regret in my own poker career, it's actually that I didn't start playing earlier. Not tournaments, which are what I played my first several years in the game. Those are very effective at building your net worth if you're incredibly lucky, but awful at it if you're not. But cash games, where you can grind out a steady profit. 10 or 15 years ago, there was so much money to be made. Going forward, it's tough to say what poker will be for me. Maybe it will continue to be viable, but maybe it won't. If this stops working, I can't complain too much. My job is playing a game. I work hard, but I also feel like I'm living in a loophole. Of course, I could simply win seven figures in a tournament, and all of a sudden all this hand-wringing would be irrelevant. In episode 6 of Third Man Walking, we'll discuss the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas and the allure of winning life-changing money. So before I wrap up for the week, I just want to say a few words about where Third Man Walking is going to be going. Right now, I have two more episodes planned, one for next week and one for the week after that. And I don't have any immediate plans beyond that. It's kind of a bummer because just in the last 10 days, there's been a big bump in people listening, which I definitely appreciate. And I'd love to keep this going if I could. But it's been six months since I started working on this podcast. And it takes a long time to polish the pros. It takes a long time to record and edit, and it's not really feasible for me to do an episode every week indefinitely. So there will probably be a second season at some point or some additional episodes, but I don't have any immediate plan for what that might be. So if you like the podcast, please be sure to subscribe, whether that's Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or whatever. And that way, if and when Third Man Walking reemerges in the future, you'll be sure to see the new episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next couple of weeks, and we'll see what happens after that.
Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 